0: Hi, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Feckit Fun Fabulous and Free Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. I'm Helly, and today's episode is actually going to be a little bit more sciencey than usual, but hopefully sciencey in an informative and useful way. So I've been doing a series of episodes on hunger. I recorded two episodes about low appetite and how to make yourself keep eating despite having a low perceived appetite in eating disorder recovery. And I've also released an episode about all the ways in which hunger can manifest in a person, both with an eating disorder and in recovery from an eating disorder. So have a listen to those if you haven't already. In this episode though, I want to talk about the neurobiology of hunger and what happens with our hunger on a biological level and from a neuroscience perspective when you have an eating disorder or when you're in recovery from an eating disorder. Now, I think you'll probably all agree that the human body, which encompasses the brain, is an incredible and actually very complicated machine. As humans, we have evolved over thousands of years to become these highly intelligent, sophisticated and curious human beings that we are today. And having spent some time learning just the very basics about the brain and how it works in conjunction with the body, I am endlessly struck by just how much, even with the modern science and research that we have now, people, scientists, experts, they still don't know about how the brain and body connect and function in a lot of ways because it is just so intricate, it is so finely balanced, it has evolved in such remarkable ways, and it is really, really extremely complicated. But probably because of my background with an eating disorder, and because of the work I do today with others who have eating disorders, I developed a curiosity into the neuroscience of hunger, eating, and satiety. And what is it that drives us to eat? What is it that drives us not to eat? And what mechanisms are actually at play within the body and within the brain? And then also I wanted to know what is happening differently in a person when they have an eating disorder. So many people on a very basic level have been led to believe that we eat calories, as in we eat food, we expend energy through movement or resting energy expenditure. And as the calories out become more than the calories we have in, our brain realizes that we need more food. And so it tells us we're hungry and to go and eat. Well, yes, when you start to dig into the science behind hunger and eating, you realise that actually all the processes regulating hunger and satiety are a heck of a lot more complicated than that. But despite the fact that the neuroscience and biology of hunger and satiety processes in the human body is not overly simple, I think it's useful to understand some of the mechanisms involved in hunger. Because when you have an eating disorder and you're normal biology is altered, knowing a bit of the science and knowing what to expect through the recovery process can help in your pursuit for health. So if you are able to engage your brain for a moment and listen to a bit of science, I will begin. First of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about the brain structures that are responsible for hunger. Now don't worry too much if you get a little bit lost in this part. I'm going to mention some names of different brain regions. You don't need to know the names. It's just putting that information out there. So don't, don't worry, you might get a little bit lost in the next few minutes, but hang on in there. Hopefully things will become a bit clearer. So one of the main brain regions controlling hunger is within the hypothalamus of the brain and it's called the arcuate nucleus. And within the arcuate nucleus are two types of neurons and I'm sure you all know that neurons is a fancy name for brain cells. So there's two types of different brain cells within the arcuate nucleus and one of these types are called the orexigenic neurons and these are responsible for circuits promoting feeding behaviours and the other are the anorexigenic neurons which are responsible for circuits that inhibit or stop feeding behaviours. And then from the arcuate nucleus these neurons project through to three other brain regions with signals that can then drive energy balancing responses and behaviours within the body. These three other brain regions that receive these signals are the paraventricular nucleus and that influences body systems which promote the breakdown of larger energy molecules to smaller ones so that they can be used for energy. And these systems include the thyroid gland, cortisol and oxytocin pathways in the body. Then you have the ventromedial hypothalamus, which suppresses feeding behaviour by releasing a chemical called brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF for short. And the third brain region that receives these signals is the lateral hypothalamus, and that can then send signals to the body, stimulating the search for calorie-dense food, and it promotes movement by releasing a few other hormones as well. So as I say, I hope I haven't lost you yet. Please don't get scared off by the names of the structures or this bit of science in this part of the episode. This section was just to really give an initial overview and demonstrate that eating behavior is far from simple. There's all these different structures, all these different pathways, all these different signals flitting around in your brain and your body that are controlling hunger and appetite. It's really not simple. So then when you look at the hormones that control the hunger and satiety levels within the body, you've got two key hormones here that come into play. And you've probably heard of these. You've got firstly leptin. Now leptin is a hormone that's produced in your adipose tissue. It's produced in your fat because at the end of the day, fat... Is an organ that is essential to the body and essential to the body's optimal health. You need a certain amount of fat on your body to be healthy. So leptin is produced in our fat and it acts on receptors in the arcuate nucleus to promote those feelings of satiety or fullness and then it also helps to stimulate heat production so it helps us feel warm. If you have insufficient or decreasing fat stores, then your leptin levels are going to be low and that's going to trigger a person with low leptin to feel uncontrollable hunger and urges to eat as well as making them feel colder than they should. So leptin is the hormone which explains why Normal people, and when I say normal people, I mean people without eating disorders. When normal people diet, they rarely sustain their diets beyond an initial amount of weight loss. Because when they lose some of those fat stores and their leptin levels start to decrease, they then get these overpowering urges to eat, which are absolutely impossible for them to resist. And then the second hormone... That comes into play when we're talking about hunger and satiety is ghrelin. Now ghrelin is produced by your gastrointestinal tract so it's produced by your stomach and by your intestines and it sends signals to the brain to increase hunger and reduce energy expenditure. So if ghrelin notices that there's not enough food coming in or the energy levels are low, It's going to stimulate the brain to give the increased thoughts of food we have when we're hungry as a means to drive us to seek food and eat. Ghrelin is also linked to increased cortisol release. And as I've spoken about in previous episodes, cortisol is, of course, the main stress hormone. And in acute stress, cortisol serves to provide the body with enough glucose for instant energy to deal with the stressful situation. So it promotes the breakdown of larger energy molecules to smaller ones like glucose, so that it's available instantly for the body to use. But when cortisol levels are elevated over longer periods of time, they can actually cause a blunted response of the brain to leptin. So feelings of satiety are reduced, and then people experience a higher desire for sugary foods, also causing the body to store more abdominal fat. This is because the body perceives this stressful situation to be ongoing because the cortisol levels are high for a significant amount of time. So it thinks it needs ongoing energy to deal with this stressful situation and it needs to be able to access energy that it can store instantly, which is why it stores it around the the belly, around the abdomen. So in people without eating disorders who are experiencing ongoing stress, This rise in cortisol that's elevated for a significant amount of time can explain why they might be driven to eat more highly palatable foods when they're stressed than they would usually in less stressful situations. And in somebody with an eating disorder, where the eating disorder will give rise to chronically elevated cortisol levels because you're always hungry and Your brain and body perceive that as a stressful situation because, yes, it is. This, again, can also help to explain why, in recovery, people are driven initially to seek sugary and highly palatable foods and also why initial weight gain in recovery is often stored as fat around the abdomen. So when this happens in your recovery, recognise it as an expected and necessary physiological process and trust that it will all balance out with ongoing healing if you keep eating and you keep yourself in recovery. And I'm just gonna also mention something called leptin resistance here because it, again, might be something that you've heard about. Research has demonstrated that some people can develop some form of leptin resistance. And this means that their brain doesn't respond to leptin release in an appropriate way which leads them to reduced feelings of satiety than they would have otherwise, and a drive to keep eating. And leptin resistance can be genetically linked and can explain why some people do have naturally much bigger bodies than others. But please, please, I need you to understand that if you have an eating disorder and a strong ongoing hunger, despite having eaten a lot of food, for example, in extreme hunger, that's being caused not by leptin resistance, but by a body that is not yet producing enough leptin due to your ongoing energy deficit and lower fat stores than your body needs. So when you come out of that energy deficit and when you gain sufficient fat stores, your leptin levels are going to normalize and your body is going to respond to that. And the satiety signals that you get will then stabilize. Your body knows what it's doing and it will just be grateful when you're in recovery that you are giving it the energy that it now needs to heal. So please just keep going. Don't worry about leptin resistance or anything like that. It's not happening in your case. It's also important to be aware that there are a number of other hormones and chemicals that come into play in the really complicated processes of promoting or inhibiting appetite. And that those that I've mentioned here are just some of the key players. So the roles of ghrelin and leptin that I've been talking about up to now are also described in very simple terms. The other big factor though, when it comes to our desire to eat, are the pleasure systems in our brain and in our body. So, in addition to some of the biochemical structures and hormones that drive appetite, the other key factors in considering eating behaviours are the pleasure and emotional systems found within the brain. In healthy people, eating is a pleasurable experience, and so it overlaps with the brain's reward circuits, which drive pleasure-seeking behaviours, reward learning and motivation. And dopamine again is a chemical that I've spoken about before. It's a chemical most people have heard of and attribute to feelings of pleasure and reward. And dopamine circuits in the brain are known to promote feelings of reward from eating foods as well as driving people to seek pleasure in food. So that's what happens in a normal person. They gain reward from eating nice food and it gives them a sense of drive to seek out that pleasure again by eating more food because that's what the body needs to do to stay alive. And as the brain is really quite smart, the brain's reward structural and hormonal circuits closely intertwine, so that when the brain senses a need for more energy, it can activate all those processes to drive the person to find food and eat, hence increasing the likelihood of food intake and so very importantly, survival. But in eating disorders this is where some of the reward and pleasure systems from eating becomes slightly wonky and that's where things start to go wrong and why people can then override this sense of reward from eating and drive themselves to actually not eat and starve themselves. So what does go wrong in eating disorders? I'm going to first off start saying that once again everything to do with the brain and the body is so complicated and there's so much we still don't know and the research that we do have now is only just beginning to really give us the information that we do have about normal hunger let alone what happens when a person has an eating disorder but there is a little bit more science and research emerging which I'm going to try and share with you. So in people with restrictive eating disorders, researchers have found that there are elevated levels of ghrelin and cortisol and reduced levels of leptin. And that is as you might expect if you go back to what those different hormones actually do. So ghrelin is the hormone that would stimulate us to try and seek food and stimulate hunger you'd expect that to be elevated. Leptin is the hormone that switches off our hunger when we've got enough food on board. So in someone who's been eating restrictively, you would expect that to be low. And when someone has a restrictive eating disorder and so they're not eating enough for the body's needs, the brain's gonna identify that as a stressful situation and so it's gonna elevate cortisol levels to release immediate energy to seek food. And then the increased cortisol will also cause the typical hyperactivity that many people with eating disorders experience. Then ghrelin is simultaneously released, which reduces unnecessary energy expenditure by reducing the metabolism and creating those increased food thoughts that people get. But of course, the hyperactivity that people get, which is caused by the raised cortisol, can become a vicious cycle because that then results in further energy deficit, which the brain identifies as more stress. And so then the brain releases even more cortisol and it goes around in this vicious cycle. So therefore, in cases of restrictive eating disorders, it's thought that cortisol is chronically elevated, but that that's tied to a reward system that is also not working as it should. I don't think you need me to tell you that within eating disorders, there is a very strong fear and anxiety-based reaction that develops within people with eating disorders to food and eating. And this can be seen within people with eating disorders who have dopamine reward pathways that are less activated in response to food seeking and eating as they would be in normal healthy people But they are activated in response to restriction and movement. So over time avoidant behaviors of food become stronger and the restrictive and hyperactivity behaviors become more rewarding in someone with an eating disorder to the point that they can even become addictive and strongly habitual. So this is where things are going wrong in people with eating disorders. They're getting rewarded for avoiding food. They're getting rewarded for restriction and movement in ways that healthy people aren't. And that's where we start to understand why people with eating disorders can override that drive to eat that would otherwise come from the hormones that I spoke about earlier. So it's now recognised that people with restrictive eating disorders have the same hunger processes and can feel hunger in the same way as a healthy person as I think most people with eating disorders can testify to, but the reward from eating is negated by the fear and anxiety generated from the eating process. And it's that which overrides the drive to eat sufficient amounts. And in addition to all of that, brain science also tells us that when it comes to compensatory behaviours within eating disorders, the strong impulses to compensate for eating are seemingly coming also from reduced inhibitory control mechanisms that are seen in the prefrontal cortex region of the brain. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain responsible for higher brain function. It's the part of the brain that's usually in control of inhibitions. So therefore, in eating disorders, the ability to override hunger and the behaviours typically seen within the illness appear to be coming from a combination of elevated cortisol with a reduced reward response to eating and elevated reward response to food aversion and movement tied into a reduced ability to stop oneself carrying out compensatory behaviours. With all that being said then, what can you do with this information in your recovery? I think we've just shown that eating disorders are Definitely brain-based, biological, neuroscience-based illnesses. They're genetic, they're biological. Research is telling us that now. So what can we do with the fact that we've got this wonky biology going on to override it and to get better? Well, first of all, reducing your cortisol is going to be key. So reducing your stress wherever possible in your recovery is absolutely crucial. This is both emotional and life stress, but also the stress created through movement, through exercise and through hunger. Then it's going to be recognising that you are hungry and listening to those signals that your body is sending you while knowing that the fear response to food and the sense of reward from restriction is not appropriate and needs to be addressed. And finally, it's recognising that While underweight, and that is underweight for your body, and not having enough fat supplies, your hormone levels, particularly your leptin levels, which usually provide feelings of satiety, will be low, but will normalise with recovery. And then your hunger cues that might feel a bit wacky at the moment will become more stable too and more reliable. Yes, I know this has been another long episode and it's been very scientific, but I also know you guys and I know that you lot are highly intelligent and that to you, knowing the science, knowing what's going on can really be beneficial. To me, understanding and being able to explain to others the neuroscience behind why people might be seen to over or under eat can also help to reduce the stigma attached to these illnesses that have been traditionally seen as a lack of willpower or traditionally seen as being about control or just somebody being deliberately difficult science today is demonstrating more than ever that eating disorders and obesity which you know i'm putting in obesity in inverted commas there this is not about people without willpower but this is biology And this is biology gone awry and chemical processes that are producing symptoms and behaviors for which the only blame really lies on their cells and their DNA. So go away, hopefully digest that while you're digesting some nice yummy food and then get relaxing, resting, eating and letting all your hormones normalize, letting your stress levels come down letting your body recover and heal and get yourself recovered. I'm Heli, you'll find me on hellybarns.com, and otherwise I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Feck It Fun fabulous and free eating disorder recovery podcast. Don't forget, eating disorder recovery doesn't have to be boring and doesn't have to be serious. Now go and grab yourself some food and have a fabulous rest of the day.